Hi, I'm Tor, and I'm here to share secrets. Today, I'm sharing secrets with Josh Cincinnati, formerly the executive director of the Zcash Foundation. Josh is a really genuinely smart and genuinely genuine dude. He's given me a lot of amazing advice uh, as it comes to starting Secret Foundation and working on Secret Network. Uh, he had a similar focus on privacy in his work at Zcash Foundation. He remains uh, really an amazing individual to be able to have conversations with because of his depth of knowledge uh, and because of his passion for privacy. So I've invited him on today to talk a little bit about the work that he did at Zcash, but mostly what he's thinking about now, uh, his current views on privacy personally, what he thinks about the direction the world is taking, and of course, what's next not only for privacy, but for him personally. I really enjoyed talking to Josh, as I always do, so without any further introduction, here is Josh Cincinnati. Josh, thank you so much for agreeing to come on and share some secrets with me. I'm excited. I'm excited. I'm thrilled. I'm running out of adjectives, but it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Yeah, likewise, Tor. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, we should start with a basic question uh, for those who are less familiar with you personally. Uh, who are you? You walk into a dinner party, let's say, these days. How are you introducing yourself to the room? Uh, uh, so, I mean, well, these days, I would intro introduce myself as, as, a, as a, just a snarky, unemployed guy. Uh, but, <laughs> but I guess previously, uh, you know, if you had caught up with me a few months ago, um, uh, before I left, I was the executive director of the Zcash Foundation, uh, which to to listeners who may be aware, Zcash is, um, you know, much like Secret, a, a project with privacy at its heart. Um, the goal of Zcash is uh, is to basically have a uh, and a censorship resistant, immutable um, uh, digital money um, that uh, that puts privacy first. Uh, and the foundation, the Zcash Foundation, uh, is a 501c3. Uh, U.S.-based nonprofit um, focused on on building private digital cash with you know Zcash as its primary as its primary focus obviously, but um, you know we went we we did things beyond Zcash as well. Uh, so so yeah, that's up until you know a couple of months ago. That's how I would have been introducing myself. Uh, but now I'm just uh, you know some 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 dude on uh, on the internet talking about privacy when I can coming on to great. Uh, great podcast to share my uh, hopefully good insights about the space sometimes i wonder but <laughs> no I've, I've actually promised everyone that this is infinite wisdom that you'll be, oh, that you'll be imparting so you have you oh, have you have good. a low bar Setting to hurdle bar low i love it <laughs> yeah well i don't think you'll disappoint uh, i've actually gotten a lot out of your advice in the past especially as we were starting secret foundation especially as secret network's been expanding I, I think where we have a lot of our commonalities is around this idea of privacy and where that ethos actually breaks down. Uh, we've talked before in the past about how it's sort of poorly understood by people to somehow represent something nefarious or something hidden. I know that Zcash and mm -hmm. Secret struggle with a lot of the same messaging around this, but sure. rather than rehash all the ways that you know, privacy is something much more humanist. I, I kind of want to understand in Josh's own words, right? D Josh of today, snarky Josh, how would you describe your personal ethos around privacy? Why why is it personally resonant for you? Yeah, and, and this is going to sound, I, I'm sure it'll sound a little bit, um, uh, a little trite 
and a little saccharin, but I can't, I can't really help it um, because it's what happens uh, when you, when you become a parent. But in my case, you know, the, the, the fight for privacy is about, uh, is about trying to do what I can to ensure that the world that my um, daughter and uh, who's now two, uh, so she has, she has a ways to go um, before she's, uh, she inherits that, that world. But I, I very much want her to, to live in a, uh, a just world where she has the individual rights that um, uh, she she should have and other people should have um, in order to have a well-functioning um, society that respects uh, the individual and individual liberty. Uh, and so I I think you know for anyone who's um, you know a parent and in this space, one of the main motivations, um, especially when you're focused on privacy, is uh, what kind of world do I want my kids to inhabit? Um, and, uh, and yeah, you know, I could see there are definitely people who I think on the opposite side of the privacy debate, uh, that have children and see it, um, you know, in a very different light, uh, to help in, in their case, you know, bolster their arguments for, uh, weakening encryption and having more surveillance. But, um, uh, and I, and I can see where they might come from, but, but for, you know, from my perspective anyway, uh, I, I don't find that vision of the world very compelling. And, uh, I think that those folks kind of, uh, underestimate, um, the amount to which those sorts of surveillance tools will be, uh, corrupted, even if there are good people behind them initially. Uh, so, but we can talk about that at length later. I just, I just, uh, you know, I, I want to recognize that like, uh, saying I want to build a better world for my kids is uh, is certainly a justification that can be used uh, to to uh, you know to to really uh, uh, bolster one's argument around uh, lots of different perspectives on this issue. Yeah, but at the same time, it's it is probably one of the best reasons that you can have is to do something for for somebody else, and and I think that a yeah. lot of the drive towards surveillance is a little bit uh personally motivated it's 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 motivated by the idea that we have to know everything all of the time or we can't be safe and mm -hmm. it, it is a bit backwards to kind of come to the same understanding that i think you have that actually it's it's by protecting our rights to privacy or at least that right to choice and consent that we're allowing next generations future generations to to form a world that does preserve human empowerment that doesn't become uh, a race to the bottom for global governments to just compete over who can hoard the most data, control the greatest portion of the population. It it does seem like there there is no end to that once you start yeah. that war. Yeah, yeah, and it's probably you know to be um, uh, you know somewhat unfortunately pessimistic. I I feel like uh, it's probably going to be a, a battle that's going to be fought um, well into my you know, daughter's life and probably in her kid's life as well. But that doesn't mean that it shouldn't be fought. It just means it's going to take a while, um, to, uh, to really win it, but it is winnable. Uh, it just, it's, it's kind of the kind of thing that much like many of these protocols that are seeking to build things that last for generations, uh, you know, the, having that victory around the way that, uh, uh, people can have choice around how their data is used and how, um, how private they want to be, 
uh, and what you know what that what their digital footprint looks like you know that's uh that's something that i think will unfortunately take take that long to get there well we'll get into more of these kinds of discussions about cognitive dissonance later mm-hmm. in the podcast but mm-hmm. the pod the 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 cognitive dissonance that i notice here is that when you listen to global governments talk about the need to protect their citizens through mass surveillance and, and that that nothing should be encrypted everything should be readable by the right parties but then you realize these same governments you know raise hell when oh wait a second china is reading all of these american communications but that's not okay and the idea that you know once you create backdoors into these things you know that opens a door and ultimately that doesn't get exploited by your everyday facebook user that gets exploited by state actors so there's a weird Mm -hmm. cognitive dissonance to think that like you can do this for the protection of your own populace but as a government you would demand the protections that you are denying the people that nominally you exist to protect oh yeah well it also it's sort of uh to me it's this underlying hypocrisy too um that uh at least that i see uh, in the political arena when you talk about um uh individuals that yeah exactly like purport to represent the people um uh demanding access to all of this data but they themselves would never feel comfortable having their personal data um you know on display right uh and you can see it you know when there are politicians who've had various embarrassing foibles uh where they assume they're you know using like a twitter dm which isn't even a great example because twitter dms aren't end to end encrypted or anything but um but still you know they they assume they they assume some degree of privacy uh between uh, the recipient and themselves and they accidentally tweet it out instead of uh, uh <laughs> going into the dm right um right. and and you know they're uh uh, of course, you know, they're thinking to themselves, well, I, I would never want anyone to see something that I intended to be a private message to be, appear on my Twitter timeline, right? But that's exactly what they're demanding uh, with uh, with these back doors. And that's, and whether it's, um, you know, whether it's the U.S. government accessing it, only being, you know, the U.S. government being the only one to access it, um, or, uh, uh, you know, start that way. And then, of course, like other state actors, once it's known that there's a backdoor, they will figure out a way to exploit it uh, until eventually, you know, it's it's like a, uh, a a cheap and easy hack that you can find, uh, you know, really much smaller, uh, smaller scale actors uh, leveraging themselves. Um, and, I, I, you know, the thing that's really frustrating about it, um, about this, like, uh, battle is that it seems like uh, every time there's a victory for privacy advocates, you know, thinking uh, in the 90s with the clipper chip and um, uh, the uh, the Bernstein case, like, we, you know, all these great victories um, uh, that came out of, of, uh, of that work, it's like we're in Groundhog Day and we're repeating this stuff again when we thought that we had final, you know, when we had, we thought we had a clinching victory back then. Um, and it's just like there's this collective amnesia around uh, that debate, uh, and and there's no, uh, at least in the you know in the U.S. and I'm less familiar with uh, uh, other world politics, but at least in in the U.S. it's it's just striking to me that there isn't this you know full backstop against um, uh, 
government's overreach for uh, for trying to weaken digital encryption and and uh, violate citizens' privacy that way. Um, it's like it's like it should be a constitutional amendment at this point, and you could argue that it already is, but uh, but you know the government just doesn't respect it or something. It's it's just so frustrating. Yeah, we. We're seeing a few backstops that I thought existed in the United States around uh, human rights and democracy begin to slightly erode. So I don't want to, I don't want to say that I I have an optimism that you lack, but <laughs> I, I just see it maybe as you're saying, right, of symptomatic of of sort of larger societal problems. It's like if we can't defend yeah. these particular human rights, who's to say we can't defend these other particular mm-hmm. human rights? It it, it is a, a dangerous slippery slope. Yeah. But there is, you know, there is, I think, cause for optimism in, in that even as the law continues to, um, you know, kind of corrupt itself against what what I think, uh, you know, should be the will of of the people to uh, have that individual right. The good news, and this has always, um, you know, always been the case, regardless of how the law says, uh, you know, or attempts to regulate cryptography, is that. Uh, cryptography will always exist in the wild and will always have an asymmetric advantage for people that are seeking to defend themselves uh, against that kind of overreach. So, the you know the the um, the good news is that um, and, and not to sound like a technological you know utopianist or anything, but but the good but the good news is that like technology does uh, does offer. A way out for people that still, you know, as as individual rights get taken away by governments, there's still an opportunity for you to reassert those rights with the, you know, computers and and phones that we have today. Um, it's it's just a matter of like, uh, you know, reorienting individuals' knowledge uh, about those technologies and and getting them, uh, you know, on board with that kind of new that new way of thinking about privacy and, and, you know, keeping everything encrypted and at rest and, uh, and, and really just being, uh, much more mindful about it. Uh, and, you know, and some companies are helping and some companies are hurting there, but I am, I am certainly like at least optimistic that for every single failure of, of, uh, you know, uh, state and national governments, um, there is, uh, I, I think a, a strong movement of technologists that, are offering us the tools to reassert those rights um, uh, in our digital lives without, you know, you know, basically circumventing uh, uh, the the will of the of of the uh, of, of the government seeking to uh, impose these like you know kind of whack job laws on people. So, <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, I, I had a Brittany Kaiser on as one of my past guests, recent guests on this podcast, who does have a lot of interactions with regulators. And Mm -hmm. I was trying to sort of figure this out for myself. Do regulators just not see the impact of some of these potential policies? Is it a smokescreen for something more malicious? And the way that she seemed to explain it to me was that most of the time, especially at like the state and local level, there isn't really this sort of malicious intent. They're genuinely trying to understand the process of innovation. And it's easier to work on these problems at the state and local level, maybe than at the national level, where most of the conversation is around national security threats. So for example, recently in the news with the EU, looking to enact this encryption ban, you know, it feels like, again, like we're, we're watching uh, Groundhog Day, as you're saying. 
So, <laughs> yeah. so w- what's your take on on these two statements? Uh, one is consumers are valuing their privacy more, and the second statement is governments are attacking privacy more. So these are kind mm. of like relative statements. Mm. Do you think either is true? Do you think both are true? Do you think neither are true? Because those are sort of the two sides here. Um, yeah. wh- where do you where do you kind of land on those statements? So uh, I, I think so let's you know start with the first the first statement about consumers valuing their privacy more. Um, so I think on a superficial level, and this obviously it's hard to make a blanket statement because uh, each consumer, you know, each U.S. Uh, U.S. based consumer, for example, is is a, is a different uh, a different beast. But you know, the uh, uh, I, I think my view is that when you see companies like Apple making privacy a uh, you know a big part of their marketing copy, when they uh, you know when uh, it's like front and center in their keynotes and in the uh, web pages that they use to promote their phones and computers. Uh, you know, it does. It does um, to me at least say that okay, well, it's entered into the conversation, uh, and it's certainly um, you know with with someone as as prominent as Apple uh, saying those things means that it is now. Uh, part of the the conversation for lots of people, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, now, and I, and I qualified that by saying it on a, that that's true on a superficial level, uh, because you know when you when you look at the incentives behind um, two things, there is that if you look at the incentives behind why Apple is saying that, uh, if you view Google as their biggest competitor, uh, that's something that they can do uh, that they can they can promote privacy very easily without it hurting their business model. Whereas Google, you know, can make some vague claims about privacy, and they do, but none of that really um, changes, you know, this fundamental principle that the less data that Google can uh, acquire on you, the less effective their business model is going to be. Um, and and so they're not, you know, to me, you know, the the real politic of Apple uh, promoting privacy is merely like another. You know, trying to twist the knife a little bit in mm-hmm. in Google's Google's product offering and other you know and other uh, potential entrance into uh, the the products and verticals that Apple is in. Um, so that's the that's the one part that makes it sort of superficial. And the other part, which is really, um, I think, f- the fundamental challenge on the consumer side is that so even if Apple is bringing that into the conversation and people are starting to value that more, uh, most people don't really truly understand. Uh, what it means to be uh, private, um, you know, on online or or to keep their data private. Um, I think the best example of this is, you know, if someone is using uh, Chrome, the web browser, and then they open up a private tab, and they just assume that at that point, like, oh well, nothing I do is going to be recorded by anyone or collected by anyone at this point because I've got this private tab open. That is uh, such a severe mischaracterization of the activity that uh, is actually going on, right? Servers are still, you know, whatever they do in that private tab is definitely being tracked by lots of different parties. Um, And uh, they're just, you know, they just don't happen to be logged in or saving cookies or their history on their local browser, right? But but I think if you ask the average consumer, they would assume that those private tabs in either Firefox or Chrome 
uh, are in fact like what they perceive as as you know being private. And then you know I think another another um, you know another example of that is that I just don't think people really fully understand when they are you know shopping online or visiting websites online like so much of uh, uh, of the activity that goes into surveilling them is like so hidden from view from them. Um, it's just it's just obfuscated by so many layers. And I think, um, you know, I've, I've had this conversation before um, uh, with some folks where I've 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 talked about like, uh, like, can you imagine can you imagine shopping on Amazon.com? Right. But but then take the experience of uh, the amount of tracking that goes into that uh, that consumer activity and you you try to create an analogy for what that would look like if you went to the convenience store and bought like a pack of gum for $5 or something, right? Like you go, you go into the convenience store, put your, your dog, you know, your, your, your cash down, get the stick of gum. And in that interaction, only you and the uh, teller really know that you're engaging in a, in a transaction in the physical world. But if it were to work the way that it worked on Amazon, there would be like 50 or a hundred people watching you make that purchase than uh, trying to sell information about all of your past purchases live in real time as that was happening and then targeting you with other, you know, you know it's like all this activity would be happening um, for you to see. And I think that if most people saw it that way and understood it viscerally, uh, there would be an immense revulsion to that kind of activity happening online. Um, so I, I, I think that, you know, consumers they do value privacy superficially, but, uh, you know, they actually don't really understand the depths to which, uh, their data is being, um, you know, or that their expectation of privacy is being violated. You know, let me present um, you with the flip side of this for a second. Let's say somebody oh, sure. walked into a hypothetical in-person Amazon branded store. Let's call mm -hmm. it Amazon go. And, <laughs> sure. and then they were to have the in-person retail experience with mm -hmm. all of the fun tracking and technologization of the amazon.com platform would, are we seeing then customers in the in-person store saying wow this is creepy or are they saying wow this is convenient mm. and i think yeah. that's why i get a little afraid here because like intuitively yeah. i see how you're setting it up if only we knew the ways which we were being tracked online we'd have a visceral disgust and on mm -hmm. the other hand if we've normalized it so much online Who's to say that we're not actually going to see it leak the other way and all of our physical experiences are going to begin to be tracked, it may be in overt or less overt ways, but the same extent to which they're currently tracked online. You know, that's that's a really good point, Tor. And I, I, I think that there's a reasonable expectation that most people, um, like I think you could make the argument that most people would actually be happy with that convenience trade-off. Um, although I would say even the, you know, the, the one counterpoint to that is, uh, I would say if, if that, those Amazon, those hypothetical Amazon ghost stores, right, um, right. if they, if they, uh, um, if they showed the, the real inner workings of mm. all of, of, of everything that was going on, you know, like in Amazon's backend and all of the third party advertisers that, um, we're, we're tracking you, um, you know, even in that like physical re retail experience, you're only seeing a, oh, I'm buying this pack of gum and Amazon's scanning my iris or my face or whatever and paying. And, and then, you know, they, maybe a little thing pops up that says, Hey, um, 
you know, would you like a, uh, uh, I don't know, like a, I'm trying to think of what an auxiliary purchase, you know, maybe a, a, a like a, a say a dozen eggs. I don't know. I, I'm I'm failing at coming up with a really good compelling <laughs> supplementary product to a pack of gum here. I would say but, toothpaste, but yeah, toothpaste. Yeah, toothpaste. Right. Um. So so it might just seem um. Uh, so so in, in that case, like you're seeing, again, the tip of the iceberg where it's like uh, the consumer might say, oh, you know what? I haven't bought uh, I haven't have bought toothpaste in a little while. I actually have been like out for two days, uh, but nobody needs to know that uh, I'm going to buy. You know, I of course, yeah, I'll, I'll add that to the cart and buy that. Right. right. And, and you might just see it as a convenience. But, you know, behind the scenes, uh, all, maybe all of the. Uh, you know, there, there's all this data collection going on between all of your smart devices where Amazon had some like statistical knowledge or, you know, they, they gathered that there was this likelihood that you were out of toothpaste. Right. right. Um, and that's why they were able to engage in that profitable upsell. Um, and I, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I just see that that even in those. So the thing that is like is somewhat fearful is like if those online experiences leak to the physical world and continue to obfuscate the like privacy violations that are happening behind the scenes, uh, you know, then, then people might continue to be uh, sort of indifferent to it, you know? Here um, we're landing on another hypocrisy then, you know, the way that corporates and even governments are incentivized to obfuscate the practices of mm -hmm. violating our privacies. And like yeah. they, they, they seek to have privacy for their own <laughs> operations so we like nobody wants to let you inside the black box of the facebook news feed that's that's private why should why should we expose this very profitable algorithm to potential competitors and at the same time your expectation is every interaction you have with the news feed as a customer is now always known to facebook if not other right. users yeah. so so what about the government side of this then? We can now that we've spent some time on the consumer statement, I, I think all your points are extremely valid. Let's just quickly tie it off by asking mm -hmm. relative again to the previous couple of decades or before, are governments eroding privacy more? And maybe I'll break that down like A, are they more motivated to do it for some reasons? Or B, are they more or less uh, technologically empowered to do so? Is it easier or harder now for governments to erode privacy? Yeah, I, I actually, so I think it's a, uh, it's a combination of the two, right? There's this, uh, I, I think for the most part, it's because it's easier that they want to be able to do it, right? Mm -hmm, um, like mm -hmm. it's literally that, that we have, uh, as, as individual citizens, um, we have effectively, uh, handed over our, our data rights to, um, uh, you know, to a collection of, of, uh, you know, small, maybe you might even say monopolistic companies, uh, where it's, it's just such a savory intelligence target, I think for, um, for governments that, uh, you know, why wouldn't they try to do it? If, if, if all this data is just being, collected there and we are voluntarily, you know, voluntarily giving it, even if we don't actually, you know, even if we're not really understanding or providing our explicit consent, you know, the data is still being collected. So for a lot of governments, it's just, uh, why, why not collect it? You know, um, if, it, if it can help us prevent crime or a terrorist attack or X, Y, Z, 
why shouldn't we do it? It's so easy to do, right? So I think that's that's a big, you know, a big motivator um, because you know if you if you can't compare to a um, hundred years ago, right? The um, uh, you know the possibility of like understanding or even being able to collect all of the information around like let's say all economic activity in the U.S. Right? That that would have seemed like an insane pipe dream for most governments, right? Um, and now uh, that actually it, it seems like that would be a trivial thing for someone like Amazon to do, let alone like the U.S. government, right? Um, and uh, and so I, I think that it's a uh, it's it's with all of this technical innovation and technological innovation, and as more of our lives become subsumed by uh, all of you know all of this uh, connectivity, um, it has just made it so much easier to even collect that data that uh, most I think most governments feel like you know why why shouldn't we make that a part of our um, uh, a part of our law enforcement or intelligence gathering efforts um, and you know and I think that the there is on the you know the other side of that which is like more about uh is there just an activist element uh like a, very keen on eroding our privacy regardless of whether um they're more capable of doing it you know i i, I think that that is certainly contributes to it although it might not be as strong as simply having the capability you know um i think it's it's more that um it really is more that it's technologically possible more than anything else. You know? Yeah. To quote Jeff Goldblum, you know, they, they yeah. were so <laughs> preoccupied with whether or not they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Yeah. And, yeah. and but I, again, not to get too deep into the conversation of how we seem to be missing a healthy dose of ethics in global politics at the moment. I, I think we can acknowledge where the incentives are, are starting to twist a little bit. It recently with technological advances and with the new threats that those advances <laughs> also introduce. So let's move now to the topic of decentralization, decentralized technologies, and that interplay with privacy in particular. So Zcash being an example of a you know decentralized technology mm -hmm. aiming to solve some of the issues of privacy, you know, like restoring some of the the privacy capabilities of cash to mm -hmm. digital cash that, that have sort of been eradicated uh, by yeah. blockchains. So D Zcash is one example, Secret Network, of course, being another with more of a focus on computation, the same mm -hmm. way that, you know, data privacy has been eroded by centralized and decentralized platforms. You know, there's this complex relationship, generally speaking, between how decentralized technologies can help advance the cause of privacy, while at the same time they're hindering the cause of privacy. So what are your thoughts on this? Do they do more to help or could they do more to help advance the cause of privacy versus hinder the cause of privacy just because blockchains are so public by design? And then extending yeah. that, what's more important ultimately, decentralizing things or keeping things private? Yeah, those those are great questions. Uh, so, I I think to to start in answering them, I, I, and and this is not maybe universally true, but I I think it it stands to reason um, that uh, oftentimes that the goal of 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 wanting to achieve more decentralization is actually at odds with the goal of having more privacy. And, and I'll explain the reason I, I 
feel that way and sort of explain it is um, if you look at uh, you know if you look at, at Bitcoin and I'm a huge I'm a huge Bitcoin fan uh, as as you know like I, I love Bitcoin um, but one of the one of the issues with Bitcoin um, and it's sort of fundamental to the model is uh, in order to um, uh, try to minimize the size and computational uh, uh, computational effort required to verify uh, the Bitcoin blockchain, which directly influences how decentralized Bitcoin can be, because if it's harder to do that for individuals, they have to get more expensive hardware to you know download the, and verify the Bitcoin blockchain themselves, et cetera, et cetera. So so really like. And, and this is what's been great about the Bitcoin projects is to just see this sort of ruthless execution of how do we keep this project, um, you know, maintainable in such a way and, and continue to make efficiency gains so people can keep running Bitcoin nodes on their, you know, Raspberry Pis, right? Um, so so that, that um, the, the trouble is that anytime you want to add um, any kind of uh, privacy tech uh, onto something like Bitcoin, it necessarily makes it more expensive, uh, not just within the protocol, but also, you know, uh, so like, you know, in, in terms of native fee terms, if you're using like a mixer on Bitcoin or something, um, but also like expensive, if such a feature were to be built into Bitcoin, uh, then uh, uh, it would be more expensive computationally uh, to to verify uh, the blockchain, and thus would lead to a degradation of um, of decentralization. Uh, so, and you can see it, you know, you can see it across other projects too. Um, uh, like, you know, there's there there are all these like privacy, uh, you know, things that people are starting to work on in Ethereum. Uh, but using them is just extremely expensive in, 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 you know, in terms of in Ethereum protocol terms. And even if they were integrated, right, they would, they would still wind up being uh, more expensive computationally. So I, I just think there are all these examples of that tension at, at you know, at play. Um, so uh, that's, you know, that's, um, that's difficult to get around. But on the other hand, if you don't have some kind of um, privacy approach on these systems, you'll wind up, you know, no matter how decentralized, um, uh, you know, the, the uh, uh, you know, no matter how many nodes you have, how decentralized uh, uh, your network appears to be, um, you know, you could wind up uh, basically sort of defeating the goals of your project if you don't consider how to make privacy, uh, you know, uh, sort of a first class uh, citizen. Um, and like an, an example of this, so, uh, you know, again, to, to take the Bitcoin case, um, one of the important features of Bitcoin is that, uh, you know, they, that each bit, you know, each monetary unit of Bitcoin is a, a fungible asset, right? It means that that each Bitcoin is, is valued at one Bitcoin, right? Um, but if if you manage to really max out the decentralization of the network, um, you know, yeah, you're, um, maybe you'll still be able to uh, include uh, transactions with the right miners, but, but if your address is known to have been uh, 
uh, participating in some illegal activity, uh, you know, according to the precepts of some law that you don't agree with. And maybe it's not universal, but maybe it's just in some, uh, you know, kleptocratic state of some kind. Right. Sure. sure. Um, but but those, you know, those folks um, can, depending on how much power they have geopolitically, if you're just aiming to use uh, Bitcoin as a store of wealth and you just want to be able to uh, use it to transfer wealth um, and all of these and, and effectively there's like some universal acknowledgement by all of these governments that 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 your address is uh uh, associated with some illicit activity, right? They can basically put the kibosh on that, no matter how decentralized. So they'll they'll just you know stop you from uh, transferring to dollars, stop whatever real estate transaction you're engaging in, even if it's native to Bitcoin. Uh, maybe they'll uh, have maybe you'll try to just use that Bitcoin to buy a sandwich at a shop, right? And they have uh, CCTV cameras uh, in the shop that face identify you connect you to that address and then they send the cops your way, right? Like there, there's just um, all of this scary um, stuff that can still happen if you just ignore privacy completely, right? Um, yeah, I, actually, I, I think it was one of my previous guests who kind of described it this way, the, the lack of privacy protections for these kinds of coins means that fungibility is destroyed that you yeah. that bitcoin is effectively a non-fungible yeah. coin because they have specific provenance yeah yeah and i i mean i'm to, you know i'm to, uh, in some sense i'm i'm grateful that um that that hasn't happened yet on bitcoin even though it's like certainly possible right um and oddly enough i mean i made this joke as you know from my my twitter account i mm -hmm. i just I, I make lots of jokes uh some of them fall flat actually most of them fall flat but uh but one that I was particularly proud of, even if it was kind of esoteric, you know, they found the, um, uh, uh, I guess they, the U.S. government finally tracked down a billion dollars worth of Silk Road Bitcoin, right? Right, right. Um, and now what's going to happen is that the U.S. Marshals are much like, you know, most Bitcoin that they have acquired, they're going to auction it off, right? Mm -hmm. Which led to this uh, realization that I had. Well, it was like, oh, well. Instead of like blacklisting these coins, it, it appears that the U.S. Marshals are just—they're uh, like the a, a god-tier Bitcoin mixer. They're just—they're <laughs> just, they're just uh, cleaning these coins so that they can continue to be fungible for everybody else. You know, um, how nice just one way, a public one service. way to look at it. Yeah, exactly, a nice public service of them. But you know, that obviously is not a very um, comforting model to just rely on. Uh, on uh, a government to keep fungibility in check, especially if you, um, like me, feel like um, the Silk Road, you know, was a net positive thing for society rather than a net negative thing for society, then, you know, you could argue that, like, the government shouldn't have been uh, acquiring those coins to begin with. But, um, uh, you know, they shouldn't have, have uh, uh, seized them to begin with, rather. So, so anyway, it's it was a, a bit of a, a you know a flippant joke there, but the uh, but but luckily at least on Bitcoin we haven't seen that loss of fungibility yet. But it's clear that that's that's a trivial exercise for any motivated government at this point. Um, and and so yeah, I, I do feel like there has to be and 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 you know this is I don't mean to rag on Bitcoin because uh, you know there it's not like the, the the it's not like the people that are working hard on Bitcoin are blind to this issue. They're, and it's not know, like 99% of blockchains and digital assets don't work the same way. Right, right. Yeah. 
Yeah, exactly. Like they all all follow sort of downstream of of that of those design uh, decisions. Um, but I, I, you know, and I think that they're the, the Bitcoin folks are actually working very, very hard. People that are involved in Bitcoin are working very hard to add privacy to it. It's just because of the, um, you know, because of the way that the Bitcoin protocols uh, sort of social contract works, it's just very difficult to change the protocol um, to support those things. And that I think, again, net positive is a good thing, but it's something that uh, I, I, I do think you know, we have to be very careful about uh, because we need to be able to fix that issue to ensure that these things will continue to be fungible. Um, so, yep, yep. Yeah. that's in that is definitely inherent to most of the theses I've read about Zcash. That's definitely inherent to the thesis that we have around Secret Network when you compare it to other mm -hmm. smart contracting platforms. Where again, as you're saying, because of the way a lot of these things are designed including Ethereum, to add mm -hmm. privacy after the fact is incredibly expensive. It, it is oh, cheaper yeah. to do things either natively on Secret Network or to even use it as an L2 to Ethereum to provide privacy as a service effectively to Ethereum applications or to Ethereum-based assets. You know, th that's just due to the design decisions. You know, it comes down to, is this privacy by design? Is it privacy by default? And then choose to make things public as they need to be made public because it's so much more expensive so much more expensive to go the other way yeah so to tie things together uh here we are nearing the end of our conversation but this show is called sharing secrets mm -hmm. uh we've talked a lot about privacy at a high level mm -hmm. uh you, inside the decentralization space and outside but now i'm going to ask you personally back back the Josh hat back on, sharing some of the biggest secrets that you've personally learned working in the blockchain space. And maybe this is where we start to talk about some of the cognitive dissonances, some of the hypocrisies that we often see in our day-to-day -day work in this space. So like, what's something that you've really come to understand about how the blockchain space really works that you think many more people should understand whether they're working in the space, loosely following the space, investing in the space. What is it that you now know from having been on the ground that you think people just haven't even begun to necessarily appreciate that would really benefit them or help them see things more truthfully if they did understand it? Whew, uh, that is that is a good question uh, as well. Uh, I I don't know if it's as much a like. Uh, a secret necessarily, uh, but but I will say that uh, one of one of the biggest takeaways in my experience um, has been you know that that people uh, I, I think and it's not usually malicious or, or malevolent, but I think in service to some of these lofty goals that we all have, um, you know people will often I think make um, uh, compromises uh, in, pers in in how they uh, decide to um, uh, you know and how they decide to act and um, behave in in these settings there's so much money on the line for so many people um, and I, I feel like um, I've, I've often like witnessed this behavior uh, and you know it's 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 hard you know it's hard because in our industry, you have so many outright scams, right? You just go and look at the Craig Wrights of the world, you know, and 
uh, and like there's there's so many of them, you know, and and OneCoin and all, you know, just um, BitConnect, you know, there's just so many examples of things that were just so clearly scams um, uh, that that people I think they they put their guard up against those sorts of uh, uh, you know those those sorts of projects, but they sort of paradoxically I think put their guard down when it comes to projects and and people that are operating in grayer areas, right? Um, where uh, maybe someone's claiming that that uh, a network is decentralized because uh, of all of this data that they purport, or maybe someone wrote a uh, you know long report about uh, a company's finances or um, you know things things of that nature where, uh, people assume just because, oh, well, I see that this act is happening and that it's being reported this way, that it must therefore be an open and honest interpretation hmm. of, uh, you know, of, of what's going on. But sometimes uh, I've found anyway, in my experience, that like uh, uh, that that isn't uh, really the case, or at least it's being those things are being presented or reported in a way that uh, actually would um that I, I knowing more facts would disagree with, right? Um, and and I think that the more that you have a critical mindset, um, really like t take all these projects with uh, with a heavy dose of um, uh, skeptical empiricism, and uh, and try to follow as much as you can about the way that they work, so that you don't. Um, you know, you don't, you just don't want to be, uh, you know, either, you really just don't want to be, uh, uh, I, I think, uh, supporting something that doesn't line up with what you believe, you know, ethically. Um, yeah. Although, you know, the old saying, nobody ever got rich with skeptical empiricism. <laughs> it's true. They haven't. And, and, you know, if that's your goal, then, uh, <laughs> then, you know, just keep on dancing till the, you know, keep, keep on playing musical chairs until the music stops. Right. But, <laughs> but, uh, but no, that, that's, that's true. It's just, um, I, I guess I, I just, uh, I, I think there's, there's a lot to be said by, by maintaining that skepticism without turning into, you know, just an outright pessimist. Right. Right. Um, that, that's the, that's what you have to balance there. Um, yeah, it, it's interesting to see the, all of the ways that incentive modeling and incentive design and incentive alignment play out in all of these fractal scenarios where on the microscopic and the macroscopic layers of the industry, everybody's incentives are occasionally aligned and then occasionally out of sync and then occasionally outright in conflict. And you see the ways in which this affects the way people speak publicly about their own projects, other people's projects, you see the way that certain messages get amplified or not amplified. Some of it is as simple as saying, like, people like to shill their bags. <laughs> but some of sure. it is also just so much more complex, the social relationships between people who will ally themselves with each other when convenient, but attack each other when convenient. I, I can see how, like, as a passive newcomer to the space, Without knowing all of that history and all of that context and seeing, you know, what people's incentives are before they speak, you know, you're not motivated to understand it necessarily because it doesn't make any difference to your bottom line if, like many casual people, you're only in the space to, you know, make uh, independent wealth for yourself more, more than mm -hmm. anything else. 
so I guess I what would what I would echo from what you're saying since I don't think we can really stop speculators from speculating and you can't really make them care about things that don't seem to impact their bottom line if if you are a developer in this space if you're a student looking to make a career in this space uh, if you're mid-career in this space and you're looking to figure out where you should be applying your effort and your talents for the long term I have to echo everything that you're saying which is come at this with a skeptical eye be optimistic you know you, you can believe what people tell you if there's evidence for what they tell you and and there's plenty of people in the space doing incredible work who are deeply honest and deeply giving with their time you should seek them out but it's not everyone see <laughs> so, so you do have to be a bit careful i guess i guess the best way to identify the right people is to is to wait and see how they perform on podcasts <laughs> yeah yeah which which i'm sure you know for for me means that uh, a lot of people don't want to work with me but that's okay <laughs> <laughs> josh i i think that i we can we can speak for the audience here i'll, I'll speak for them and i'll, I'll with one voice i i think that we want to hear more of josh not less of josh we would like to hear your uh, skeptical empiricism manifest in any number of ways, whether it is on this podcast or whether it's in your tweets or elsewhere. So if there's mm -hmm. any way that people listening can follow more of what you're writing, more of what you're saying, and, and especially figure out you know, with you what's happening next, how can they keep in touch? How can they see what's going on? Oh, well, that's uh, that's awful kind of you, Tor. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, uh, right now, uh, Twitter is probably the best place for that, but I am... I am coming out with a, uh, you know, for something completely different from my past efforts. I am going to be doing a uh, uh, kind of an adventure in uh, creating a, a, a satirical periodical of sorts. Um, uh, and that uh, that will be, so on, my Twitter handle is A City in Ohio. It's a, an extremely <laughs> clever play on my last name. Uh, Toledo. And then, uh, yeah, that's right, Josh Toledo. Uh, <laughs> but um, uh, but yeah, uh, and and then I, I I'm going to be doing that 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 uh, that project, which is going to be mostly just my writing um, with occasional guest spots, and really me uh, kind of continuing my um, I'll I'll do some audio stuff too, but it won't be like a traditional podcast, I don't think. Um, but that'll be at bitbanter.com whenever that's set up. Um, so coming soon, uh, and and I'm at the very least. You know, the, the primary goal is to make people laugh, but the secondary goal, as with most satire, is to is to hopefully educate and provide some some uh, attempted wisdom. I cannot wait to see this go live. I have no <laughs> doubt that it will be a rousing success. That it will that it will cause me to uh, think a little more deeply as well. I'm, I'm certain I'll laugh very hard at it as I enjoy your tweets. Probably more than any others. So I appreciate you. I appreciate you taking the time to read some of your tweets out loud on this podcast. Everybody appreciated it. Um, and uh, I look forward to doing it again in the future, man. Uh, and best of luck. Thanks, Tor. Thanks so much for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, I hope that you choose to share it. I also hope that you choose to check out Secret Network and what we're building. You can find us on Twitter at Secret Network, our homepage, scrt.network. You can join our official chat at chat.scrt.network where you can connect with our global community of privacy advocates and passionate community members who help contribute to open source, privacy-first technologies. Thank you so much for listening. I really hope that you join us again for the next time we share secrets.